This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Bear with us today. A couple of the regulars are not feeling well. Their voices may sound funny on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin, and Lauren Layla, you somehow caught a cold, even though you've been wearing masks nonstop. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's a cold <laughs> or just my voice after after six soccer games and three hockey games. It's just yeah, that was That's a lot. Too much. I didn't even have to play in any of them. <laughs> you might have been much. screaming as the enthusiastic mom, so it might just be a, a sore vocal cord thing. Layla sounds like she actually yeah, has it. I might, well, I might lose consciousness during this podcast. Oh, Call 911 no. if I go silent. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get started so we can finish and you can take it easy. <laughs> Why won't Ohio tell us if scammers have received unemployment benefits in our names? Lisa Garvin, we talked about this last week. We went out and did the story. I'm kind of amazed that there are answers, but they're not going to tell us. Well, they say, number one, that they're not required to. I didn't dig into the, you know, the legalities of that, but that's what they said. They're not required to notify people that they've been victims of fraud. But, you know, other reasons are, you know, and quite honestly, I kind of feel for them. I mean, people are using scammers, you're using a mixture of names and different passwords and addresses. It would be really hard to trace them all. And and ODJFS spokesperson Bill Teat said as much. He said it's really hard to trace all victims and contact them because some of them may have moved. And like I said, hackers are using a mixture of real and fake information. They do not have a notification system or any way for people to check whether they've been victims of fraud. But their reasoning for not having that is that it could invite more fraud. If you put a database out there for people to check, you're just asking hackers to come in and steal more stuff. And there's probably some privacy issues sprinkled in there as well. As of the 27th of September this year, we've had 369,000 fraud reports. So a lot of people got affected by this, Chris, you being one of them. Okay. So if they know they have 369,000 fraud reports, they do know who's the victim of fraud. They could tell you. And, and if they really wanted to make it easy, they could compare the names and addresses of people filing for unemployment to the driver's license database. And anytime you get a mismatch, think, hmm, maybe that's fraud. I'm, I'm just not buying this. That I mean, if they know where the fraud is and they, they've calculated the ridiculous amount of money that's been stolen, they know who, which of us have been defrauded. They should tell you. I, 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 just, I read this story with, a, with incredulity. The one thing I'll give them 
is if they set up an online portal, it, it would probably be <laughs> having to fraud. More yes. fraud would occur. But but I, I would think that once you file the report, as many of us have, they're required to get back to you. You know, if you file a police report because you're a victim of crime, the police generally get back to you. I filed a fraud report. Countless other Ohioans have filed a fraud report and you never you never hear back. You never get anything back from them about, hey, nobody stole money in your name. Don't worry about it. So it's a it's a very unsatisfying situation. I've heard from no end of Ohioans this year about their frustration with this. And I'm just not accepting their bogus answers about this. We don't have to tell you. Can I, what, what about public service? Laura Johnson. I just want to add in that I was talking to Jeremy Peltzer about this story back and forth on Friday. And, and there was all this long list of reasons they couldn't do it. And my response was like, credit card companies have to tell you, stores have to tell you, and they have the same long list of reasons why this is difficult. Like, so is it just that it's hard and we don't have to? I mean, that's kind of what it boils down to. Yeah, it's always easy to come up with reasons why you don't have to do something. But when you're in public service, when you're working for the taxpayers, you should find a way to do it. There are a lot of people that are uneasy about this. This system has been such a disaster that it allowed this much fraud to happen. They kind of owe it to the residents to say, hey, you're okay. Nobody got money in your name or they got money in your name. Here's what you need to do to protect yourself from, from further fraud. Yeah, Terrible, but terrible answer. Yeah. But where is the legislature in all this? The ODJFS has been under-resourced, underfunded. Their computer system is a mess. So, I mean, you know, the legislature has to step in and give them resources they need to track down these fraudsters. I'm sorry. I think that they, you know, they need that, those resources to do that. Well, I blame John Houston because he stood in front of us, what, 30 times saying, I'm fixing this. <laughs> he never did. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is there so much optimism about the future of the Cleveland hotel industry, even if the future we are talking about is three years from now? Laura Johnston and Susan Glazer put together a story that had hope. We don't get a lot of hope coming out of the pandemic, but people are putting some money up showing that there is hope. Yeah. After 18 months of the pandemic, tourism is looking up and there are a bunch of exciting projects on the horizon. Developers are looking past the pandemic at this point. So a couple of the big projects are the Erie View Tower plans to turn the lower floors into a, of this 40-story skyscraper into a luxury W hotel. This would be the first W in the state of Ohio. So that's exciting. The Renaissance Cleveland, which has been on Public Square for about 100 years, could be completely renovated and just be Hotel Cleveland, including a rooftop sign kind of like what we have at Public or Playhouse Square. And several prospective owners have submitted bids to buy the Westin Cleveland downtown, which is one of the main convention-oriented hotels. There are also three smaller projects in the work, including a hotel called The Orbit near NASA, which sounds pretty pretty cool. And actually, our hotel occupancy isn't even that bad. It was 62.7% in August. And weekends are booming. It's the weekdays, the business travel. We really haven't seen re rebound yet. Yeah, it's just, like I said, it's rare to have optimism with the pandemic. Restaurants have been crippled and everybody's having a hard time finding workers and you know, supply chains are all broken because of the COVID. So it was fascinating to me to see that people are looking three years down the road saying, hey, 
we, we think this is going to go well. And when people put real money up, that, that says it. Although the story did point out that they have to get the financing right. and that may not happen. Not everything well, will come to fruition. And what's interesting is you're looking at that occupancy rate and you're like, okay, 63%. Obviously, there's still a lot of room. And then we're going to put all these hotels on the market. You know, is that going to affect it? But experts are saying that actually demand can increase with the supply. That that's what happened when the Hilton opened uh, attached to the convention center right before the Republican National Convention. But I think to have that, we do have to have the business travel and the conventions coming back. And they're not really looking for those to return for three years as well. Like 2024 is when they think they'll be back up to capacity. Well, you know, it was interesting. They pointed out that after the the convention, that occupancy did dip a little, but it quickly climbed back up to pre-2016 levels. And so all of those hotels did pretty well until the pandemic crippled everything. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the arguments on both sides of the debate about the future of Horseshoe Lake, in which residents of Cleveland Heights and Shaker Heights are vigorous, vigorously debating but with great civility. Leila Tassi is one of my favorite stories because I was watching this debate move on on nextdoor.com because I live in Cleveland Heights. And I was so impressed with the passionate arguments people were making, largely without demeaning each other. It's a great divide with, with strong points on both sides. And the way people are discussing it is just heartening. I wish all of America would work like this. What's it about? (laughs) I love this story by Pete Krause. I think he did such a nice job exploring those complexities of the debate. So Horseshoe Lake, which straddles Cleveland Heights and Shaker Heights, it was created in the 1850s by the North Union Shakers when they dammed up the north and middle branches of Doan Brook so that they could power a woolen mill. People people have loved this lake for, for all the reasons that we love lakes, right? Recreation and wildlife and serenity. <laughs> but the dam has fallen into disrepair. And so in 2018, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources ordered the lake level lowered by three feet and then fully drained the following year for safety reasons. The dam had just become so compromised that the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District says that if the lake were full and the dam gave out, a 16-foot wall of water would reach Lee Road in two minutes and eventually flood parts of University Circle. So that's where we are with this with this uh, this this dam and and the lake. The sewer district is proposing to you know remove the dam altogether and return the land to its natural state. You know the, the state it was in before the Shakers arrived. But people are really upset about that. Obviously, they're speaking out online, and and some residents have even banded together to hire an attorney to represent their interests here. But what I found really most fascinating about this story is, is how the debate, you know, the divergent positions of the two historical societies that are involved, the Shaker Heights and Cleveland Heights Historical Society. Cleveland Heights, you know, they they have come out squarely in favor of preserving the lake and its ties to Shaker history. But the Shaker Heights Historical Society is taking a different position that has really struck a nerve with residents. You know, they said in in their statement online, they said Horseshoe Lake has been a beloved aesthetic feature of Cleveland Heights and Shaker Heights for over a century. And many of our staff uh, will grieve its loss. However, as historians, we would be remiss to ignore the thousands of years of indigenous history and stewardship of the land before the Connecticut Western Reserve was occupied and before the North Union Shakers dammed Doan Brook. So it, it's so interesting that the two are, are you know, they, they both have a stake in it and they've taken such different positions. And so now, you know, the sewer district says that 
rebuilding the dam has no sto- stormwater benefits. They they're not willing to pay for that project. If 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 any if you know the proponents want to take it over, they're going to have to put millions of dollars into it. Shaker Heights City Council voted to adopt the, those recommendations to remove it. Cleveland Heights hasn't weighed in yet, so that's where it stands. It's it's just a fascinating discussion. Um, yeah, yeah. It seems like it it's pretty set because I I just don't see the residents of Cleveland Heights or Shaker Heights voting for an enormous tax to to put the dam back especially when the sewer district is saying look we'll eat the entire cost of restoring it uh, How do you, you create, feel about it, Chris? You mean I've got I, I, I look. I can see both sides of this. I I I you know look. The natural order always seems like what we should do, and you'd have a wetland in an area that doesn't have a lot of wetland and all the wildlife that it supports, and and it's better for the the, the floodplain and all of that. But you also have a hundred years of this community asset that's treasured. What we did run an op-ed from a naturalist saying, look, for a hundred years we've trained waterfowl to use this as, as a migration point. And so all these birds that might not have originally been here have established a pattern of coming here and we're going to to take that away. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just love the debate. It's a, it's a great one. I mean, it's kind of moot, I think, because I just don't see anybody putting up the money for it. And there's still a lower lake that there is a second mm-hmm. lake further down that the sewer district is going to fortify i don't think it's nearly as in danger as the the one that was on horseshoe lake but 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 what i've loved about this is just the the passionate arguments people are making in in favor of what they're saying without the the donald trump era you know vicious attack because you disagree with me people understand each point of view um, and, and they're trying to parse it. I mean, one of the things people say about the natural order is, all right, you want to go back to the natural order? You got to tear down all the houses near the lake, too, because yeah. they weren't there when it started. <laughs> you know, I live on a street that was a creek. It, it's, I live on Meadowbrook and it, it's named Meadowbrook because it literally was a waterway that they culverted. You know, are you going to return that to the natural state? So so I think there's a strong argument on both sides. And it's been it's been fun to to see it see people debate a good community issue in a healthy manner. Um, and I hope it spreads beyond Cleveland Heights and Shaker Heights to other arguments. If you're I listening could, to this week. Oh, if, go ahead, if I could jump in as a Shaker Heights resident who grew up in the sixties and seventies and used Horseshoe Lake quite a bit, I understand why it needs to go. I mean, you know, I, my brother was in a school down on Euclid Avenue, like in 59, 60, and there, something happened uphill and all that water came down Cedar Hill and flooded that university circle area. So it is quite, it it is quite a problem, but I honestly, it's, it's a big piece of my childhood and I'm sorry to see it go, but I understand why it has to go. I really do. Well, and we'll see what kind of wildlife it now attracts because we just don't have much in the way of wetlands in the, yeah, especially on the east side of, of Greater Cleveland. So it'll be be issue. Right now, it's a big bunch of weeds in, in the mud. So we'll have to see how it develops. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the 20-year clock now ticking on a new lakefront park on the east side of Cleveland? Lisa Garvin, you know, it took 20 years for the Towpath Trail to be completed. 20 years. I remember when it for, the talk first began, and now it's done. It looks like we have another 20-year project in the making for recreation in Northeast Ohio. 
Yes, and it's going to be called the Cheers Park, and Cheers being an acronym for a very long name, the Cleveland Harbor Eastern Embayment Resilience Study. Um, basically, what they're doing is, and people who drive on Interstate 90 know this, the section between Gordon Park and the East 55th Street Marina, I-90, is right on the lake there. So the City Planning Commission approved a $300 million plan, and this is a 15- to 20-year plan, to augment the shoreline, build some like islands out there, like that would be like barrier islands that would protect the shore. And it would help resolve a couple of issues that I-90 created. One, cutting off these east side neighborhoods from the lake, and also two, being so close to the shoreline, you know, it, it, I-90 being so close to the shoreline just really affected you know, the area there. So what they're going to do is they're going to take dredge material and use this dredge material that they've dredged out of the river in the harbor and expand the shoreline out. And it would be 150 total acres, both water and land. And it'll include a paddleboard launch, some trails, and then some bike and pedestrian connections to neighborhoods at East 55th, MLK, and East 72nd Streets. So it sounds very exciting. They are awaiting a grant of about $900,000 from National Fish and Wildlife to move forward with the first phases of the plan. It's very exciting. I mean, Eastside residents, you know, will get their edge water, although I will argue that we do have Euclid Beach here on the east side. People seem to forget that. But this is a very exciting project and the renderings look really fabulous. Yeah, and when we convert Burke Lakefront into the park it should be, it'll <laughs> augment that. Can we all just agree at the outset that the Cheers name is really stupid? Yes, totally stupid. <laughs> I mean, we hate acronyms and, to begin with. Like, we try to take them out wherever possible. So, yeah. Can it, you know, you sh- can't you come up with something that is that is more record? I mean, Cheers. I, I know somebody's <laughs> really proud of that, but it's stupid. And if we got 20 years to come up with a real name. Let's start working on it now. You're listening to this. This week in the CLE. Starting today, people can register for the Vax to School Scholarship Sweepstakes. Who's eligible? How do they register? And what can they win? Laura Johnston, this is just a public service to remind people. So give the particulars, please. Right. Starting today, parents and adults of kids ages 12 to 25 can register at OhioVax2School.com. So that's Ohio VAX and the number two school. So if you're younger than 18, your parents have to do it for you. But um, the good news is a total of 155 scholarships will be awarded. Five vaccinated students receive $100,000. 150 students will receive $10,000. And the money comes in a 529 education savings account. You can use that at colleges, university, technical trade schools, or career programs. And and you know, now you should put in your plug. As soon as the vaccine is approved for five year olds and up, they need to put that into the scholarship mix, right? I I I think so. And if it continues this way, where the younger people are the lower vaccinated rates, they're going to want to give some kind of a incentive because right now, eighty five four percent of Ohioans sixty five and older have started the vaccine, but only forty two percent of Ohioans in the twelve to twenty five age group have have. So I mean, we're looking at half the number for the younger group. So I and I I mean I think there are going to be parents that have concerns about vaccinating their children and 
or say, I'll get around to it. Me, I'm like the first day I will line up. Please let my kid get vaccinated. Uh, can I jump in? This is Layla Tassi. If they don't save some of these sweepstakes for the kids, <laughs> my column will come out of retirement <laughs> and I will go after everyone. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that. I mean, Mike DeWine has shown no hesitance to do incentives. I'm sure he'll come up with something Ugh. after the initial rush. But but everybody who they're just gets making it, it rain, and then there'll be nothing for the no. You know, kids and and we can even say all this time. Maybe they'll be able to use it for private schools. You know, for for K through twelve tuition that hasn't been a part of any plan yet. But that would be an interesting idea. Well, and the other thing is by putting it into a five two nine account, if your kid is younger. Think about how that can oh, grow yeah, and true. what you can do with it. So it's look, it's a it's a smart idea. I mean, he takes a lot of guff from people saying, "Why are you incentivizing?" And he's proven this is actually a very cost effective way of increasing the number of people that get vaccinated. I, I'm I'm always surprised at how he gets hit on this. He should get hit on the failure of the unemployment system, but people want to make fun of him for his sweepstakes for the vaccine. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With the number of people willing to be jail guards dropping while the number of inmates rises again, how is the Cuyahoga County Sheriff fulfilling his responsibility to keep the county jail safe? Layla Tassi, a disturbing story, but he has risen to the challenge. He's come up with a solution, albeit an expensive one. Yeah, they need at least 698 officers to run the jail. That's according to the county's contract with the, the Ohio Patrolman's Benevolent Association. The county has authorized funding to hire 700 25 officers, but currently there are 547 correctional officers working there, including 20 who are in training and 20 on authorized leave. So they are falling far short. So Sheriff Christopher Villand over the weekend deployed sheriff deputies and protective services to staff up the jail. He says that even though the county has bumped up the pay scale for corrections officers from $19.12 to $24 per hour for new hires, and they've offered these bonuses for, for each corridor with perfect attendance on the job, that change is relatively new and it hasn't really yielded a crop of new officers just yet. So uh, this is his solution in the meantime. And, you know, the reasons for the shortage, you know, there's there are high inmate population, which is stressful for officers and, and also this mandatory overtime if, with the staffing shortage. If officers don't show up for their shift, the ones who are there can get stuck working 16 hours without a lunch break. So it's it's morale, uh, not just the the pay scale. So I it seems like they they will have to work harder to fix some of the issues that that officers are are identifying here. You got to appreciate the sheriff for for taking the steps. I mean, in the past, I think all sorts of failures occurred. The trial of the former jail director Ken Mills bore out that the, there was really no no organization chart that you could tell who was in charge there. But here we have a sheriff who's saying, "Okay, we got to have the right number of officers in there." So I'm going to take people off the street and put them in there until we we get what we need. Uh, the result seems to be we're not having the rash of deaths that we had back in 2018-2019. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What significant ruling did the Ohio Supreme Court make late last week about drug possession? Lisa Garvin, this one slipped past us until Saturday. It's a it's an interesting ruling and it was unanimous, which is a little bit surprising given the breakdown of that court. 
Yeah, what an interesting case. This was a 2018 case out of Seneca County, Ohio. A woman, Kelly Foreman, she gave birth at a hospital in Tiffin and her baby tested positive for cocaine. So she was later charged and convicted with being in possession of cocaine the cocaine being in her body, not in like a little plastic sack in her purse or anything. She did admit to using cocaine about two weeks before the birth of her baby. But um, the Supreme Court ruled that there was insufficient evidence to prove that she possessed the cocaine there in Seneca County. Just because she lived there doesn't mean that she was, you know, able to be found guilty for possession of cocaine. A very, very interesting case. So her conviction was vacated. And uh, I'm assuming this will be case law now, or, you know, precedent for case law saying that cocaine in the body is not possession. Yeah, what was what the crux of it was that once it's in your bloodstream, you no longer have physical control of it. Right. As opposed to if it's in your pocket, you have physical control. And that was the crux. I bet it was. It was unanimous. And you're right. It's precedent from now on. Police cannot make those charges based on what they find in people's bloodstream. Uh, um, one that that I you know should stand. I wonder how many other people might have been convicted for similar things over time. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How high has demand climbed for COVID test kits in Greater Cleveland, and why is that? Laura Johnston, this is an interesting one. The home test kits, you know, became available just in the past year. Originally, demand was fairly tepid, but now it's out of control. Right. It's climbing. It's not as bad here as places like Florida, where people have taken to standing around waiting for trucks to bring new shipments. But the tests are sold out online a lot of times because of national demand. And Cleveland and Cuyahoga County public libraries, which offer the tests for free, are often out of stock. And this is just an indirect product of the surge. Obviously, lots of people had COVID. And a lot of places started saying, if you want to come and you want to come to our concert, or you want to come play a square or the sporting event, you've got to show that you're vaccinated or that you have a negative test. So all of a sudden, there's this huge demand for it. So anywhere you go that you're going to be in close proximity, apparently people are using them for weddings. And then parents want to test their kids if their classmates have COVID. And people might be using them for travel too. Although I know when you go to Canada, you can't take an antigen test at home. You have to go and have an official one done at a pharmacy. But yeah, demand is really up. Yeah, I didn't realize that you could use these less accurate tests for concerts and things because anybody could bring in something showing that the, they took the test. I mean, even if they didn't, whereas if you go to the pharmacy, it's in your name and it, and it's more accurate. Um, that, that was surprising me. It doesn't surprise me that people would want to have someone home to test their kids if they're exposed or if they, you and Layla today just might want to have a home test kit. <laughs> oh, I, I had a pharmacy one already a couple days ago. Negative. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so so having the home test kit would be interesting. We should give credit to to Governor Mike DeWine. He did invest some millions right. of dollars to provide these test kits to libraries in large numbers. I mean, and, yeah. and has come back and put more money into it, right? Two million tests originally. And last week, the controlling board approved the purchase of additional one million tests with an option to buy 400,000 more per month through June 2022. And it, it just interesting because at the beginning of the pandemic, do you remember how hard it was to get a test? Like people lined up in their cars for hours and hours just because they didn't know if they had COVID and no one knew anything about it. And now it's become a lot more convenient, but the demand is still there. Do you know, can I jump in? Pardon me. Hold on. (laughs) 
Excuse me. Um, I, I wonder, with so many people testing at home, how does that skew our understanding of the pandemic and the numbers that we see in community spread? I mean, if I'm someone who tests at home and gets a positive test, would I necess- I might not necessarily go follow up with a, a clinical one. I might just quarantine. And that my positive test result won't make its way into the state database. How, how- that's a really good point. That's that's true. There's probably a whole lot of positive tests now that are um, not being reported. And so we don't have an accurate number of how many people have had this thing. Uh, th- th- I, I don't know if the state could set up a voluntary reporting system to at least capture some of it. But but yeah, you're 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 correct on that. That's um, that's an interesting point. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Who's the third Ohio Congress member to be diagnosed with COVID and how is he doing? Leila Tassi, it seems like being a member of Congress is a dangerous profession these days. They're all vaccinated, but they're getting it anyway. Yeah, that's right. Luckily, these symptoms are pretty mild for those who've been vaccinated. U.S. Representative Bob Gibbs, a Republican from Holmes County, tested positive for COVID on Thursday, and he's quarantining at home in Ohio. He says he's had bad cold symptoms and he's vaccinated, so he's sure that the symptoms were far less severe than they might have been. His staff was subsequently uh, tested for COVID, one tested positive, though that person also says that they're not experiencing serious symptoms either. And Gibbs is the third member of Congress from Ohio to test positive for COVID in the past two weeks. Tim Ryan, a Democrat from the Niles area who's running for U.S. Senate, he announced his diagnosis on September 20th. Bob Latta, Republican from Bowling Green, also announced a positive test later that day. All three say their cases were pretty mild because they were vaccinated. You know, thankfully, you know, the vaccine does not does seem to be making these breakthrough cases pretty mild because we have lost some legislators to COVID. Uh, so scary times. Although, although I have heard that there are people that get the breakthrough and while they don't end up in the hospital and end up on a ventilator, they describe it as the worst illness they've ever had, that they're down for the count for a couple of weeks. It's just not giving them the the pneumonia symptoms that people get when they end up going to the hospital. So interesting. There was a lot of talk over the weekend too, about how Cleveland area hospitals were pretty much at capacity because of the number of patients, which they had predicted. Uh, hopefully that that'll drop the way the number of cases have. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Feel better, Layla and Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Come on back tomorrow for another discussion of the news. 